The sermon title this morning is Man Does Not Live or Die on Bread Alone. The scripture reading, if you'd like to go there, we're going to take it in a number of sections, but it, it's from Matthew chapter 15, verses 29 through Matthew 16, 12. And just a reminder of, as we're going through, preaching through the, the, the gospel according to Matthew, um, remember that there are five main discourses. Um, there's the Sermon on the Mount, the Apostolic Instructions, the Kingdom Parables, the Discourse on the Church, and the Olivet Discourse. We are currently in the narrative section. Each one of these discourses are, are separated by narrative sections. We are currently in the narrative section after the Kingdom Parables. Um, we've talked uh, the past few sermons about the, the sort of chiastic structure of the book of Matthew, um, with the, the pinnacle being of that chiastic structure, that mountain, the top of that mountain being the kingdom parables, in which Jesus is, is teaching everyone, including us, uh, what is the actual kingdom of God and what it looks like. And then as we come down the backside of this mountain, we are going towards Jerusalem. We're going towards um, Jesus suffering and dying on the cross, being buried, and three days later being raised again. And ultimately, we are headed towards the Great Commission that Jesus lays down for the church in Matthew 28. Just a brief summary, too, of the last three sermons. Um, they all kind of fall in the same sec the narrative section, and they pretty much go with the verses that we're going to cover this morning. Um, three sermons ago, we had the feeding of the 5,000. Pastor Steve preached on that, along with Jesus walking on the water. And we, we saw the, that God provides for his people. Right? We, we see that in the feeding of the 5,000. We also see uh, the focus ought to be when Jesus walks on the water, remember, and Peter goes out to meet him. There's so many sermons and so many teachings out there about the faith of Peter. And um, it's kind of funny because Jesus actually says to him, you have little faith once he gets in the boat with them, right? Why did you doubt? But the, the, point, the point that Pastor Steve made is the, the, the focus and the point of that account being recorded in Matthew's gospel is that Faith and our focus should be in Jesus Christ. And, 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 we, and we, by taking our focus off of him, we do so at our own peril, right? So we, we saw that. Um, two sermons ago, we saw Jesus' interaction with the Jewish religious leaders. And it was about God's commandments versus human traditions. Um, and then the last sermon... Uh, last week by Dave Lewis talked about the faith of the Canaanite woman and he contrasted that faith of the Canaanite woman with the lack of faith that Peter and the disciples had and how scandalous this really is because, um, you know, the Messiah is a Jewish Messiah, right? And Jesus' interaction with her and what, what, uh, what, what were the characteristics of her faith, right? She sought mercy, um, she didn't disagree with Jesus whenever Jesus refers to her as a dog, in essence, right? 
And this is, this is the, that humbleness is, is the start, you know, good foundation for, for faith that, that we ought to have. Now, the sermon this morning, it's, it, we find ourselves in the season of Advent. And we do, you know, celebrate Advent and we prepare for Christmas in so doing, remembering the first Advent, right? The birth of Christ and we look back on that, right? And we, we, we kind of spiritually prepare ourselves in this season uh, to celebrate the birth of Christ. Um, we also look forward to Christ's second advent. That Christ, in fact, will one day return. Um, in the second half of Matthew, we're going to see as we go through this, that, that Jesus is teaching his disciples through both the narrative by what he is doing, and by the discourse sections, by what he is saying, right? He is preparing them not for his arrival, but he is preparing them for his departure. And as we go through the Gospels, we, 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 in, in really all biblical texts, especially the, the, the New Testament, we should think about and analyze the text on three levels. Um, I've been trying to do this. Uh, this is kind of my guide in preparing sermons. And one, the first level that I think about is just the fact that the, that the, the text is an accurate historical account of what actually took place, right? This is especially true for the Gospels. There's narrative and it's a, you know, there's storytelling going on. And we take a look at the ministry of Jesus and his dealings with people, including his disciples, the Jewish religious leaders, the people of Israel, and also Gentiles that he came in contact with, authorities as well. So that's one level. and We see this as a, as a historically accurate uh, document. Second level that, that we need to think about, I think, is the, the idea that the gospel was written by Matthew, right? Inspired by the Holy Spirit, yes, but he's writing a gospel to a primarily Jewish first century audience. I think when we consider that, it helps us to better understand the text. We consider what he had in mind in writing, and it helps us to consider how he intended the audience would have received, how that intended audience would have received this gospel. And at Abiding Grace Church, you've heard up here many times in this sermon series, I say things like, about, about Matthew and also about the epistles as well, um, that they were written, they were not written to us, but they were written and preserved for us, right? And I, I think it's important to understand that uh, so that we can have a right interpretation uh, of, of the text. And finally, um, keeping in mind the first two levels, we have to better understand the text so that we are better able to apply it to our lives. Because if we don't have that in the first place, if we don't have a right understanding and interpretation of the text, how can we apply that text to our lives properly, right? So that, that's the way I want us to think about That's the way I think about whenever I prepare, prepare the sermons in this series. And I think it's important that you, you understand that. And you'll maybe see that in the pattern of, of how the sermon goes. Um, so the, the, the text 
is Matthew chapter 15, if you'd like to go there. I'm going to read the first few verses. We're going to take this in sections. It's a long narrative section, but I hope that you'll see that it all fits together very well in the end. Verse 29, Matthew chapter 15. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee and went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. So I have to ask the question this morning. It's important to understand the text. Where is Jesus right now? Where exactly is Jesus in this narrative? Um, Our text says that after retiring to the region of Tyre and Sidon, um, sort of north of Galilee, uh, on on the Mediterranean coast, um, is where Jesus was before this. This is where he interacted with the Canaanite woman from the last sermon. Jesus went there and he walked by the Sea of Galilee afterwards, right? And it's not really specific. It's not, not that specific, right, in, in Matthew. So the parallel account that Pastor Steve read this morning is more specific and helpful in this regard. Mark uh, chapter 7, verse 31, it says that he, tur- he turned from the region of Tyre and then through uh, Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of Decapolis. Decapolis was a group of Hellenistic cities that functioned as semi-autonomous city-states dependent upon Rome. There were Jews there, but there were also very many Gentiles in that region. Okay? It's important for us to recognize that fact. Um, the people of that region, including the Gentiles, brought their infirm to Jesus. and The text says that he, they would put them at his feet. And he healed them, and the people were filled with wonder as they, they saw the mute be, uh, speaking, the crippled healthy, and the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And it is very interesting that Matthew writes that they glorified the God of Israel. Okay? If it was a primarily Jewish crowd, Matthew probably would have just written that they glorified God. right? So I think it's, it's very important for us to understand that this is very much a Gentile audience. And this is, this is very interesting because we just went from the fact that Jesus uh, interacted with the Canaanite woman whose daughter was demon-possessed. And, what did, and Jesus ignored her, you know, saying that he, he, he was, it's not right for him to give the bread, uh, the children's bread, the, the, the bread that was for Israel, to the dogs, right? But, and, and ultimately, we know that Jesus did heal uh, her daughter, because of the faith that she showed whenever she, she said that even the crumbs fall from the table for the dogs, right? But now we see Jesus healing all these people who, who were likely Gentiles, many Gentiles uh, at least mixed in with, with this crowd. So we can, we can say that we have a, a, Jesus is in the, in the realm of an area where there are Gentiles present. Now, why did I spend this time on this and to try to establish this fact that this is a most, mostly Gentile audience? And I think it's important to understand um, that 
the, 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 the textual critics out there will, will try to conflate these two feet, uh, miraculous mass feedings, right? We had the feeding of the 5,000 that was three sermons ago, right? And in this very short narrative, relatively short narrative section, we, now we have another accounting of a feeding of 4,000, right? So the textual critics, um, people who you know, are scholars in the Bible, but they don't necessarily believe in um, inspiration of the text, and they, they, they certainly don't believe in the inerrancy of the text, right? Um, like we do. Um, but they will take things like this and say, oh, this is just Matthew telling a story. And, you know, he's just, you know, he, there, there was only one, one healing or one, uh, one feeding. And, you know, basically we're just going to break it into two as a means to uh, emphasize the storytelling or to tell another aspects of, aspect of the story. But I think it's important that, that, we, that the, there's, a, in fact, actually two feedings here. Right, that are happening. Two miracles that take place. Another reason why they'll doubt this is, but they'll say this. They'll say that um, it's not likely that there were two miraculous healings because the, look at the look at the reaction of the disciples. How did the disciples react at the second uh, feeding? We're going to see this when we get into it. Um, they they say. Um, you know, where are we going to get the bread? You know, where, where can we get bread? Uh, you, know, you know, after, you know, Jesus already did this once. Why would, they, why would they say that? You know, don't they know that Jesus can just do that same miracle again? Right? This is a reason, that, you know, this is a, a reason why some might doubt that there, there, was, there was a second feeding. But I, I don't think that that's, you know, all that um, strange. We all act like this. Right? Think about your own life. Think about a time that you had financial hardship, you lost a job, or there was a threat of losing a job, and somehow God came through through his people or through through circumstance, and everything turned out great. Right? Everything turned out fine. God provided for you and for your family. How, how, how short memories we have in those situations, right? The next thing happens to us, and what do we immediately do? Even if, even if the economy goes a little sour, stock market dips, you know, prices go up, you know, there's some rumors and talks about losing a job, you know, there's going to be layoffs down the road, right? We, we instantly start to worry, right? We become filled with anxiety. We forget the fact that God just provided for us two years ago, right? We forget so fast. We do the same thing with medical things, right? Medical crises in our life for, for ourselves or for our loved ones. You know, God brings us through a, a medical hardship, you know, through a surgery, through treatments. Things are, things are better. We, we actually do give God praise for his hand, and, and said healing and recovery. And the next time we have an issue, we go right back to that same worry and concern. We forget what God has done for us already. We forget that God provides. I think that's what happened here. The disciples forgot that God provides. Right? So I, I don't think that's that strange. Now, I'm going to 
go on to verse 32 and read the next section. And we're going to get into the feeding of the 4,000. And I think it's important. I think, I think that the textual critics, you know, I don't agree with them. But I think that it is a good question to ask, why is the feeding of the 4,000 here? Right? What, what, why did Jesus do it? Why did Matthew record it? Right? We, we, need to, we need to find out why. And hopefully we'll do that. Um, by the end of the sermon. Verse 32. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and having nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, seven, and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they ate and were satisfied, and they took up seven baskets full of broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. So we have now the account of the feeding of the 4,000. And let's, look, let's just look at the, the, at the difference. I already established the fact that this, I think, is a second, a, a, you know, a second feeding, miraculous mass feeding of 4,000 this time. 4,000 men. And... We've established the fact of where it's at. It's in a mostly Gentile region. Now let's look at the sort of the, the compare and contrast other facts about the two feedings. So with the feeding of the 5,000, the place is likely near Bethsaida, sort of northern shore of Galilee area. Um, the feeding of the 4,000 is in the region of Decapolis, sort of the eastern sort of southern-ish shore of Galilee. So two different places. One of the other facts to consider is that the, and, and, and we're going to do a little bit of fun with numbers here this morning. Don't get worried. I'm not going to do any arithmetic. There's not going to be any multiplication or anything like that. We're not going to go too crazy with numbers. We're just going to, we're going to pick up on, I think, some things that Matthew's putting in here. Some facts that I believe are facts and not just figuratively we pulled out of the air. You know, God ordains things and he can ordain the numbers of things as well. Um, but I think it's, you know, it's instructive to look at this in this case. So we have the source of the meal in both cases, right? He didn't start from nothing. Um, Jesus multiplied existing food items. Um, the, the, for the 5,000, the source was five loaves and two fish from a child's lunchbox, as Pastor Steve said a few, uh, few sermons ago, right? And the source for the 4,000... With seven loaves and a few small fish, the number is not, not uh, disclosed. Now, you can, you can look at the number five. It's a significant number in the sense that the Torah is five books, right? There's a, there's a Jewish aspect to that, right? The two fish, I've read that some consider the, the fact that there are two tablets of the law is potentially being significant here. 
I'm, I don't know. I'm, I don't have a strong opinion one way or another. I can see it. Um, it's interesting on the side of the Gentile feeding, you have seven loaves. Seven's a significant number, right? Most of the time we'll think about seven as sort of a number of completion, right? Seven days in a week, you know, day of rest, those sorts of things. Um, but it's interesting to note that seven people groups were driven out of Cana whenever Israel uh, took, took possession of the land, right? Gentiles, right? It's also interesting to note that there are seven churches mentioned in the book of Revelation. Right? So you can see um, that there may be some significance there pointing in that direction. Now, let's think about the baskets of, of food that were left over, the leftovers. Right? Twelve baskets for the feeding of the 5,000. So, I mean, that's clearly representative of the tribes of Israel, right? And you can imagine, and Pastor Steve actually did state this in his sermon on the feeding of the 5,000. You have 12 disciples, one each holding ba- a basket full of food. They had nothing before that, right? But you can see sort of that, um, you, could, you could see that identifying that first Feeding that first mass feeding of 5,000 is being related to the Jewish people, right? The nation of Israel. Who, by the way, were led in the wilderness for 40 years and fed by God with manna, right? God provided for them back then. God provides for his people here as well. But now... We see with the feeding of the 4,000. And it's interesting to think 4,000. Like 4,000, that's like a, you know, why not 5,000? Like how does somebody discern, you know, in estimating a crowd? Like you ever see the crowd estimator? They always do it like in Washington, D.C., right? Whenever there's a protest or some rally or something like that, they send up the drones and they try to estimate the crowd size, right? You know, so, you know, these numbers, you know, 5,000 and 4,000. You know, they feel like you know, estimates and more so than you know, I can count seven fish to start with and I can count seven baskets, right? But you know, it could be significant though too, like 5,000 versus 4,000. You know, five, again, Torah, five books. 4,000, four winds of the earth, right? To the ends of the earth, right? You could see where the, 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 you know, the, the, you know, that uh, Matthew can be using that number in terms of estimating the crowd um, to, to, to make a point. About the fact that this is a Gentile crowd. This is God um, showing that his plan for salvation. His plan to redeem for himself a people. Does not just include the nation of Israel. But it includes people from every tribe and tongue in the planet. Right? could see that expansion. And think about it like this too. You know, this is being recorded here. This is this is a this this is a mo- this 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 gospel Matthew's writing is audience is a Jewish audience, right? We, we it, by the end we get to the to the great commission that says that you're to go and make disciples of every nation, right? He doesn't just drop that on them. 
right? There's clues that, that, that this is the way God's going throughout Matthew, right? We have, we have the centurion's uh, servant who gets uh, healed, right? Great faith shown by him. We've had the Canaanite woman. Now we have this feeding of 4,000. So it, I think it's important for us to see this. And I think this is why the question, you know, why is this here? This is why it's here. So that we can understand the fact that God's people ultimately in the new covenant is going to include Gentiles, not just Jews. Yeah, so Matthew's writing the gospel to convince the, the, this, uh, this, his, his mostly Jewish audience that, that Jesus is their promised Messiah, right? We see that um, with, all, with all the fulfilled prophecies about Jesus. We're, he's trying to convince them that the messianic kingdom uh, that's being established is a spiritual kingdom for now. And the fact that it includes both Jew and Gentiles, as I said. Now, I think there's a point of application for her, us here this morning in this regard. And it, we don't ever, we should never think a person or a people group is outside the reach of the gospel. We all do this. I, I do this sometimes, to my shame. You think somebody from a different culture, somebody from a different religion, you know, they're Jewish, they're, you know, Hindu, they're, you know, from India, they're from, you know, the Middle East someplace, and they don't, you know, maybe this isn't for them. That's, that's, that's anti-gospel, right? That's anti-Great Commission, right? All people groups, you know, we're to go and preach the gospel to all people groups, right? Here's the other one that we do. We think a person is too bad to receive the gospel, right? There's some kind of riffraff. They're, you know, they're, they've lived a bad life. They don't, you know, they're not receptive to the things of God. So we might hesitate to take the gospel message to them. We should not do that. Right? We cast the seed. And God by His Spirit does the work. And you're going to often be surprised by those God ushers into His kingdom. Right? So it's important for us to take that point of application in our evangelism. Nobody... No people group is outside proclamation of the gospel and evangelism. So now we move on to chapter 16, verse 1. This is where the Pharisees come along. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Jewish religious leaders, re-enter the narrative. Verse 1, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees came, and, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to, to it except the sign of Jonah. 
So he left them and departed. Now, this is reminiscent of a previous time when uh, the Jewish religious leaders came and sought a sign from Jesus in Matthew chapter 12, uh, verse 38. Um, I actually preached a, a message on that text. Um, in that text, they refer to him as teacher and they, they ask just for a sign. Um, this time our text says that they come to him again seeking a sign from heaven. So they've, you know, there's a plethora of signs everywhere, right? I mean, he's feeding people miraculously. He's doing all these healings and stuff. But now they're saying, you know, let's, you know, yeah, we see all that other stuff. But like, you know, we want, you know, Jesus, we we want to see a sign from heaven, you know, that you are who you say you are. They're not as nice this time. You know, they don't refer to him as teacher or anything like that. Why, why do you think that they would come to him in this different tone and manner to test him in this way? Is it possible that they were unhappy with him ministering to Gentile crowds? I think it possibly could be. We know that they were jealous of him and uh, that they, they saw him as a threat to their position. And it, it's interesting that Jesus... You know, he points to the, he, they, they ask for a sign from heaven and they, they, and he says to them, hey, you interpret signs, you know, like the weather and stuff like that. Um, but I'm not going to give you any signs. He's like, I think he's mocking them in, in some ways in this interaction. Um, but he goes back to the same, essentially the same answer that he gave back in Matthew chapter 12 is that no sign will be given uh, to an evil and adulter, adulterous generation except for the sign of jo- Jonah. And what was, remember, the, what was the sign of Jonah? You know, Jonah went in the belly of the whale for three days, three, ni- three, three nights and three days. Well, Jesus will give them the sign of Jonah when he goes and suffers and dies on the cross, when he's buried and he's in the grave for three days and the third day he rise, rises again from the dead. That is the sign that they will be given. But they, they will be, he will not give them any sign before that. Now we come to our final section of our text this morning. Um, chapter 16, Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 5. This is the, the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Verse 5. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you failed to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, we know that leaven most often represents sin in the Bible. In fact, during the Passover, Israel was commanded 
to, to not only not eat leavened bread um, during that time, but not to even have leaven in their possession. Right? Now, there, there's exceptions, some exceptions to this interpretation of leaven in the New Testament. In fact, back in Matthew chapter 13, and I also preached a sermon about this. Um, you remember the, the parable of the mustard seed and, and the leaven, right? Where um, it was a characteristic of leaven that was in view in terms of God's kingdom, right? The mustard seed is small. The, the kingdom of God, God uh, the, the kingdom of heaven stop, starts off small, but then it, like leaven, permeates everything and goes everywhere, right? That was the interpretation of that parable back in Matthew chapter 13. But in this case, Jesus obviously has a negative connotation uh, to leaven here, consistent with the, what, how leaven was interpreted in the Old Testament. Now, we see that the disciples, first off, forget bread. They don't have any bread with them. And Jesus warns them as, as, as they go to watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So prompted by, by Jesus' warning, the disciples begin to, to, to to uh, discuss all the interactions that Jesus had with the Jewish religious leaders. No. That's not what he did. <laughs> right? What, is he, what do they do? They start talking about bread and the fact that they have no bread. And they're probably blaming each other. You just imagine, it's like my kids, right? So the first thing that they do is start blaming each other whenever something like that's not going right, you know? Oh, you know, Peter, you forgot the bread, you know? Well, you're supposed to get the bread and you didn't get the bread. Judas, you know, what, you know where's the money for the bread? You know? No, you know, that, it, was, it was ridiculous. But, you know, thinking about it, though, I mean, it may, maybe, may, maybe they were discussing, you know, hey, in the other cases, we had something to start with. You know, if we have to, you know, if Jesus has to miraculously, you know, uh, feed another crowd, you know, this seems to be happening quite often. You know, we're going to need something to start with. You know, maybe, maybe I can imagine that something like that kind of argument was going on. And in 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 a way, this is in this in this series of lessons about bread and our dependence on God for everything. This is like strike three for the disciples, right? It's like strike three for them. And and Jesus, he he comes down on them. He says, "Oh, you of little faith." And again, we see this sort of this contrast in this section of of narrative between the faith of the Canaanite woman and and the lack of faith that the disciples had. Now, Jesus reminds them at this point of both miracles. Again, this is really strong textual evidence that these are two distinct feedings, right? And again, if you you believe, I mean, if you believe... You know, it all in, in, in that the text is accurate, right? And that, that, that Matthew's not just lying to us, right? He, he, you know, right in the face of the text, we can see two, two feedings that Jesus talks about here. Um, and Jesus is teaching them something in all of this. He's teaching them with what he did, what he said to the, to the Pharisees, and what he is now saying to them as he warns them about the leaven of the teaching of the Pharisees. 
much like God taught the people of Israel in the wilderness. From Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, I'm just going to read the, the third verse. And he humbled you and let you hunger and, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Do you remember where this was quoted in the New Testament? We covered it in this, this sermon series, right? Matthew chapter 4, right? When Satan tempts Jesus in the wilderness, after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, Satan says to him, if you are the Son of God, then you could command these stones to become loaves of bread. And Jesus answered them with this, with this quote, right? Man, from Deuteronomy 8, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. I have a couple of sides here. One, I just want to remind you that Jesus, as the new Israel, in the wilderness, succeeded where the people of Israel had failed in the past. I just want to remind you of that. And he did it by quoting scripture. Another aside, and it's interesting for me to, to, as I was preparing this, to note that um, Satan's temptation of Jesus to reveal himself, to reveal his true identity, right? It starts with, it starts with, uh, you know, Jesus' hunger as, 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 a, as, a hum, as a man. Jesus as a man and his limitations as man. He was, hung, he was legitimately hungry, right? Satan tempts him with food, but he does it in a way to, you know, and, and, the, and the other temptations are going to be this way too, but it, it, it tempts him to, to sort of show himself or prove himself to be the son of God, right, by, by turning the stones into bread. This, this, this is right in line with the Jewish religious leader. This is exactly the thing that they were doing to Jesus, right? Tempting Jesus, right? In the same way Satan was tempting Jesus. Now, I, I, I love bread as much as the next person. Maybe not as much as Oprah. But quite frankly, bread is not the point in this story, right? Physical hunger is not the point. Even Satan knew that Jesus can turn stones into bread if they were needed. The point is that the word of God is life. And the lies of this world and the lies of Satan are death. Jesus was saying, watch out for deadly teaching from the Jewish religious leaders. Don't listen to them. Listen to me. I am proving myself to be the incarnate Son of God in your presence. I have the words of life. Listen to me, believe in me, and live. This is what Jesus is teaching his disciples. This is the message that is being transmitted to those first century Jews who are reading this gospel. And it is the message that we need to receive here today. There are many voices out there today. Right? There are many teachings out there today that are distressing. 
destructive and deadly. They are permeating our culture. And we have, we have easy access. Our young people have easy access to these poisonous philosophies and teachings. These poisonous philosophies and teaching permeate every aspect of our culture. You cannot sit and watch television, commercials even, without being influenced potentially by these deadly teachings and philosophies. Do we believe Jesus when he says... Man does not live on bread alone, but on, by every word that comes from the mouth of God. I feel like we fall so short in this area. Think, think about how you spend your time. Thinking about how I spend my time, even. Preaching to myself here this morning. You ever see the, the I guess, I don't know, if it, I think it was in Apple's apps or whatever... They which you know track how much screen time you have in various apps. Can you imagine if you did that for your life? And you looked to see how do I spend my time? Right? I think many of us, if we looked at that, would think that there's not evidence that we believe Jesus whenever he says that we live by what comes out of God's mouth, by his word. How, how do we know, how does God communicate with us today? It's through his word, right? Through his, the Bible, right? His inspired word is the primary means that God communicates the words of life to us today. Does the, 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 the way we spend our time reflect that we believe that? We need to be so connected to God's word in the midst of so many destructive voices. And we need to start to eliminate some of those influences in our lives and in the lives of our children. We need to believe that God has preserved his word for us for a reason. The words of life are in there. We, do you realize we carry the words of life when we share the gospel with somebody? Right? And, we, and we need, to, it's not just, you know, that we, we spend our time even, even reading, I mean, even reading religious books and things like that. I mean, how, how close are the things that we are reading, even if they're in that realm, how close are they tethered to God's word? Right? I, I think... There's a wake-up call for us here this morning. And, you know, it, it, it's right to look at it this way. I, I think even, you know, Jesus, he, he was speaking to the disciples back then. Matthew uh, he was speaking to the uh, first century Jews. And we saw this play out, in fact, in the epistles, right? Jesus warns the disciples of the teachings of the Pharisees, right? The leaven of those teachings, evil teachings, that permeated, permeated the early church, right? Like leaven. Who, 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 who carried some of those teachings? 
and infiltrated the church with them. uh, The Judaizers, right? Very much influenced by the Pharisees, right? Undermining the gospel message by adding to it. We need to to take an account in our lives today, I think, and, and, and look at how we're spending our time Look at how we're spending our resources. And we, we, we can say that we believe that man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. But I think more and more we need to uh, put our money where our mouths are. And we, it needs to be the truth in our lives where the rubber meets the road. Um, so that we can... We, we suffer so much unnecessarily, right? Because we're not connected to the word of God. So, you know, you may have a commute in which you, you listen to something right now, but you could be listening to the Bible. I would suggest you get closer to God's Word in that regard. Consider changing the things you're, you're in, being influenced by. I know I am taking that same assessment of my own life um, because God does have the words of life. And if I don't connect myself to that, then I do that at my own peril. So let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have preserved your word for us. Thank you that you have given us examples in the Gospels for us to apply to our lives. Lord, we recognize that you have the words of life that, that we need. Lord, I pray that you would help each and every one of us take an assessment of our lives of how we spend our time, that we would be connected more to your word through study, through prayer, that we would take advantage of the, of the Bible study opportunities available to us in this church. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would Teach us by your word and that you would do a work in us, Lord, and that you would help us to block out the negative influences from the spirit of this age. I pray that you would help us to be a better witness of the gospel of grace by changing the way we live and by helping us to be more clear in the message that we deliver to all peoples, regardless of culture or religion or social status. Lord, we pray all these things in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.